God. Well, I want to welcome our elders here. If I tend to speak to the camera, I've now learned to talk into the camera, so if I seem like I'm ignoring you, it's not on purpose. I have to get used to preaching to people back in the sanctuary. As I said a few minutes ago, this is all going to be very different for a while. But as I've had to learn in doing this strolling online and preaching to the camera, that you can adjust, and we will adjust. And what I felt was, although our worship experience is going to be very different and and very limited to some degree at this time, it's important that we take some step towards getting back towards something that's normal. Even if it's just a declaration to the devil and a declaration to us that we're still a church and that God... So we're believing God for continued wisdom, not just for us, but for all the other pastors that have wrestled with this decision, not just here, but around the world. And I've talked to a number of them And they come out in different places, and that's okay. And each church is different. Uh, Their setting's different. The people are different. Uh, I I did not mention, but you'll see when you go online, we are encouraging for next week when the the service is open uh, that those of you who are of my age bracket and higher, um, that as it's recommended, that uh, uh, we're encouraging you to continue to stream. Uh, Those of you that may have uh, some physical uh, issue, um, that uh, some physical issue that uh, uh, in, it would endanger you a little bit. We encourage you to stay home and don't feel pressure from other people. Don't feel like it's your, you know, you're not a person of faith if you stay home. If you come for the wrong reason, that's not acting in faith either. So we'll all get there. So just be patient. I just really felt I don't want to be, I don't want to be rushed in all of this. So praise the Lord. All right, let's pray over the Word of God because I believe God has something very important for us to look at today and talk about. Father, we thank you for the time of worship. We thank you for the fact that we can connect with one another, whether it's physically here or online. And we thank you that you continue to give everyone wisdom of how to proceed. And now we turn to your word. Father, you've given us this word for the express purpose of revealing us to us who you are, what you want us to know about you. And Father, you've given us your word so that we would know and understand what you've done for us and what you would want to do through us. And today as we continue to look into your word, we're asking you through the Holy Spirit to take this living word and to breathe it into our hearts, the breath of life. Father, open the eyes of our understanding that we might see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus, and for that we give you thanks in advance. I, I surrender to, my, to you as best I know how, Father, to speak only as it is the oracles of God, what you put in my heart, only what comes from you and what you want to say. And I yield myself as best I know how to allow you to do that through me and that alone. And for that we give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we've been looking uh, over the last several weeks, uh, for a while now actually, at uh, who is this God we serve? And it's so important because we come to church and worship a God, we pray to a God, we sing songs to a God, we've been saved by a God, but who is this God? And it's really important, especially in this day and age when there are all kinds of things out there on the internet, there are all kinds of things you may have been trained in in your traditions, all kinds of things telling us things about God. But what we discovered is the only way we can truly know who God is and what He's like is what He's told us about Himself. 
Because you can't see God. We'll talk a little more about that today. You can't see God. You can't look in His eyes. Unless some supernatural event happens, you can't hear His voice. So the only thing we can know about God is what God has chosen to tell us in His Word. And we looked at some of the things already that God has told us about Himself. We looked at when God introduced, reintroduced Himself to Israel after they come out of the wilderness in the book of Exodus in chapters 19 and 20. And what God said about Himself, in the, first of all, in the first uh, first commandment he said I am the Lord your God the Lord there is the Greek is the Hebrew word uh, Yahweh which is the self-existent one so we saw that God owes existence to no one everything comes from him and we'll talk a little more about that today we saw that he is he is our God and that a God is someone that provides for you your provision your protection your identity they're the source of everything you need and and the, the Jews had just come out of over 400 years in bondage uh, in a nation that had over 2,000 gods and God was tr- wants to convince them and show them that He's their God and who this God really is. And then we saw that He is the, uh, the one that is their God is an almighty God. They don't have to worry about whether He's going to be enough for them. One of the translations of that word almighty is He's the God that's more than enough. And then we saw that he's our co-laborer. God, God gives us had work he wants to do in the earth, but he doesn't just sit us here and then he goes and does the work. He condescended so far to involve you and me as co-partners, co-laborers with him in carrying out his work, which is why it's so critical that we know who he is. And then last week we began to look at he's a holy God. We saw that this how critical it is for, for the God wanted to get across to them right up front that this God that they are serving, this God who has a relationship with them, He is a holy God. And we saw some of the means that God used to do that, that the whole purpose of God establishing with Israel, once He got them out of Egypt, once He appeared to them on the mountain in all His power and glory, then, then, then He instructs Moses to build this elaborate system of a church, basically, called the tabernacle. And we walked through just some simple aspects of it. But the whole lesson we talked about is God did this because He was going to dwell in the midst of that camp but in a very limited form. So he set up a room that only he could come into and, and then only the high priest once a year after performing a very particular series of rituals wearing just the right clothes because if he came in having done anything wrong, anything that was not totally righteous according to what God had prescribed, he would die on the spot. And because God's holy presence dwelt in this room. God was doing that to, inst- to let get through to their senses that their God is a holy God. You just can't come sauntering up to Him and say, Hey, God, how you doing today? They couldn't even... They were so in reverence of Him that they named Yahweh they would not pronounce. So when it came in a prayer to that, they would bleep, skip over it. So we talked about that last week. One of the things I've been reading or began to or read earlier this year that really had an impact on me is, is a book by R.C. Uh, Sproul, uh, who was a theologian, and he went home to be with the Lord a few years ago. This is a book called The Holiness of God. And, and I can't say what he said any better than he. So I'm going to read this about how critical the, for the church to recognize what holiness is and then be impacted by it. 
The idea of holiness is so central to biblical teaching that it is said of God, holy is His name. His name is holy because He is holy. But He is not always treated with holy reverence. His name is tramped through the dirt of this world. It functions as a curse word, a platform for the obscene. That the world has little respect for God is vividly seen by the way the world regards His name. No honor, no reverence, no awe before Him. If I were to ask a group of Christians what the top priority of the church is, I'm sure I would get a wide variety of answers. Some would say evangelism. Others would say social action. Still others, spiritual nurture. But I have yet to hear anyone talk about what Jesus' priorities were. What is the first priority in the Lord's Prayer? Jesus said, This is then how you shall pray. Our Father in heaven. And the first line of the prayer is not a petition. It's a form of personal address. But the prayer continues, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We often confuse the words, Hallowed be your name, with part of the address, Our Father that's in heaven. As if the words, Hallowed be your name, was just an address. In that case, the words were, would merely be an ascription of praise to God. But that's not how Jesus said it. He uttered it as a petition. His first petition would be praying that God's name be treated as holy and that God be regarded as holy. That was His first priority. There's kind of a sequence within this prayer. God's kingdom will never... Listen carefully. God's kingdom will never come... This is what we want so much. We want His kingdom to come. His kingdom will never come. His presence will never come into the church where it is not considered holy. His will will not be done in church as it is in heaven if His name is desecrated here. In heaven, the name of God is holy. We'll see that again today. It is breathed by angels in a sacred hush. Heaven is a place where reverence for God is holy. It is foolish to look for the kingdom of God anywhere where His name is not reverenced. How we, this is so important, how we understand the person and character of God the Father affects every aspect of our lives. It affects far more than what we normally call the religious aspects of our lives. This is it. If God is the creator of the entire universe, then it must follow that He is Lord of the whole universe. No part of the world is outside of His Lordship. That means that no part of my life must be outside of His Lordship. His holy character has something to say about economics. It has something to say about politics. It has something to say about athletics. It has something to say about romance. Everything with which we are involved... God is inescapable. There is no place we can hide from Him. Not only does He penetrate every aspect of our lives, but He penetrates it with His majestic holiness. Therefore, we must seek to understand what holy is. We dare not seek to avoid it. There can be no worship. There can be no spiritual growth. There can be no true obedience without it. It defines our goals as Christians. God has declared, Be holy because I am holy. 
This is from page 13 and 14 of R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. Could almost end there. But, but how do you understand what holiness is? And this is what we're going to talk about today. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words for holy technically mean to separate out or to cut out, like you would cut some cattle out from, beneath, out from a herd. And in the days of the cattle ranchers, I don't know what these do, they would have cattle drives where they would, the different ranches would, would bring their cattle to the stockyards, mostly up, I guess, in, in, in Chicago in those areas. And for safety reasons, they would mix everybody together and all the cowboys would go together. But when they got to the, to the, to the, uh, to the, the stockyards, they would have to separate them out and each, each cow or each steer had been branded with the brand or the mark of each cattle owner and so they would they would they would cut out their cattle that were theirs they would separate out of the crowd out of the herd the cattle that belonged to each 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 uh, ranch and so that's what this word means it means to separate out from what's common and but it's but it's but it's more than that it's it, it implies something that's pure so it's to separate the pure from that which is not pure, which is common, and what is ordinary. Most people, if you ask them what holy means, are going to think it means that God's better than any of us. He's, he's much better than us. But it's far more than that. It means not only to separate, but it means to be, and I'll explain with this word, transcendent. Transcendent means to be above and greater than anyone or anything. To be transcendent is to be way above everything else and much greater than everything else. And that's really the essence of this word holy. And, and, and in order to, this is what's hard to teach it. This is why the Holy Spirit has to help us. I'm not sure that it can be understood with our, in fact, I'm, I'm sure that it cannot be understood with our mind. But, but it has to be experienced. It has to be sensed. I, I remember, I, well, let's put it this way. You can tell when it's there, and that means you can tell when it ain't. It's kind of like the son, the teenage son coming to his father and said, Dad, I know you love Mom. You've been married 53 years. How do you know you're in love. And dad kind of sits back and closes his eyes. Son, you'll just know. And that means if you don't know, that's not it. So there's some things you just, they're beyond our mind's ability to make a concept of. So, transcendent is something outside the boundaries of what is common, what is normal, or what we're accustomed to, it's so far outside of it that it moves you or has some effect on you. Have, have, have you ever seen a, a, a beautiful sunset and you just go, wow. I mean, you can't you know, come in and say, wow, I just saw the beautiful, beautiful just doesn't do it. It's beyond word. I, I remember I was in, when I was in college, I can, do, I can remember, it was not that far back. I can remember when I was in college uh, between one of my years, my roommate and I uh, decided to drive across the country. 
And I remember we arrived, one of the things we went to see was the Grand Canyon. And we arrived there, I, I don't know, like three or four in the afternoon. And, you know, I've seen pictures of Grand Canyon and all this, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm 19 years old, I think, and he's 20. And I remember we finally got up to the parking lot and, we, you know, I, I have an image of what this is going to be like because I've seen pictures. I got up to it and when I stood there and I saw the Grand Canyon, I couldn't talk. I just went, it was so beyond anything that I could put words to, that that it was transcendent in that, although it's down, it was was beyond a hole in the ground. It was beyond any, it's beyond a canyon. It's so vast, it's so deep, it's so awe-inspiring. I'm getting worked up just talking about it now. It moved me, a 19-year-old, who was tired, just driven across the country. 19-year-olds are not impressed by it. But it was so far beyond anything I could have imagined. Something you can't put into words. So what makes God transcendent? I think the best way we can look at that is look at incidents where God had an encounter with somebody and look at their reaction to it. You can tell the reaction, you know, it's like it's in, in, in counseling husbands and wives, you know, one of the things I'll do is, is if when he's talking, I'll have my eye on her. Because her reaction tells me whether he's telling me the truth or not. Okay? And, and, so, and you can tell by looking at the reaction of people that are exposed to something, things that you may not be able to, to be able to understand yourself. I'm, I'm very logical in my thinking. I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm pr- mostly unemotional. And we get into a, <laughs> we get into a situation where in this situation, my wife just starts crying. And, you know, and for most men that makes us uncomfortable because we want to fix it. And how do I fix it? Well, why are you crying? I don't know. I'm just, you know, maybe a situation with our children. And she's just, I just, you know, I just got to cry. And it's like, and I look at that and I'm understanding this situation through my own thinking process. And my thinking is, okay, what's the problem and what do we have to do to fix it? And if we can't fix it, then I'm not even going to think about it because the only reason for being involved in it is to fix it. That's my perspective. Her crying makes me uncomfortable because it's exposing me to another side of... You're not recording this, are you? You're exposing this, exposing me to another side of this experience that I'm uncomfortable with and I don't want to have to look at. But I'm, as I'm learning, I need that side because her reaction to a situation tells me there's more to it than my rational, logical mind can perceive. So we're going to look at human reactions of men that are by and large good people and their reaction when they've come in contact with a holy God. The first one we're going to look at is the one we looked at last week and that's in Isaiah. And this is where Isaiah, and we mentioned last week, Isaiah was a very, in our eyes, in the eyes of that day, a very holy man. Isaiah was not like most of the prophets. Most of the prophets were poor. Most of the prophets were uneducated. God, with most of the prophets, took the weak things and the things that were not to make for his kingdom. But Isaiah was intelligent, highly sophisticated, highly educated, and he was most likely had some royal blood in him. 
and God chose him. But he brought him in the year that Uzziah died. Well, I'll just read down because I don't want to get caught in too much of this because there are others to look at. In the year that King Uzziah died, just let this paint a picture. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, these are angels. Each of them had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now these are angels in the presence of God's throne, in God's presence, and their eyes are covered, and their feet are covered. We don't have time to get into the meaning of the feet. And one cried to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Well, I learned something in reading Sproul's book. This is the only place, the only attribute that's ever spoken about God that used the word three times is calling Him holy. In the Hebrew, when an adjective was used three times, it meant it's the ultimate expression of something. There are a number of times where God uses it twice and many times where it uses it once. In the New Testament, the word is amen, truly, truly. Jesus, when he wants to emphasize, would say truly, truly. But when it went three times, that's saying this is to the ultimate. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world, earth, is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken. The voice of him who cried out said... uh, uh, by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. That's the presence of God. So Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. The word woe doesn't mean, oh my goodness. The word woe is really pronouncing a curse on yourself. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what you have here is you have... Isaiah, uh, compared to all the rest of us, would be considered a holy man. He comes face to face with the trans, not just the purity of God, the transcendence of God. And immediately he is undone. All of the things about himself that he had any confidence in are immediately blown away by the brightness of the glory of this being. And he falls on his face. And he he sees his own uncleanness by contrast to the purity and the holiness of this God in whose presence He is. And then God, having done that, now God can commission Him to go out and speak for a holy God. In the book I discovered there was a a gentleman a a long time ago named Rudolf Otto who decided to do a, a study of different cultures that, that each, in each culture they considered something holy. And he went around and he studied, what was it about that whatever that made it holy to you? And he found several things in common. First he found that whatever they talked about as holy, they could not put into words. And secondly, that whatever they considered holy moved them somehow. It had some kind of impact on them. So as we look at this, we're going to look at that from that point of view. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. This is the story of Moses having his first encounter with God. This is Moses has left left Egypt. He's been banished from Egypt. And he's been out taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He knows he's the deliverer. I don't have time to go into all that. But he thinks he's blown it. 
And now he's way out in the wilderness taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. So he looked and beheld, behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Let's explain that for a moment. I've, I've talked about it before. But, but this bush is not on fire. You wouldn't go up to it and be able to roast you know, marshmallows at the bush. Keep in mind, when Isaiah talked about what he saw, when Moses talks about what he sees, when Paul is taken up into heaven and tries to talk about what he sees, when the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos has the vision of Revelation, all we can use when we try to explain something we see that's beyond explanation is we can go to the library of our, of our vocabulary and try to pull out the best words that we feel can describe what we see. But when it comes to supernatural things, when it comes to the things of God, our words are woefully inadequate. So all Moses could find here was this, it's fire, because it was so dazzling, it was so bright, it was like fire. But I believe with all my heart, it was the glory of God, because true fire would have burned the bush up. But this was the glory of God in this bush, through an angel, and then it speaks to him. But notice, there's a lesson here, notice that Moses is casual. He's drawn to this by curiosity. So, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn up. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near to this place, but take the sandals off of your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, half an hour before, that wasn't holy ground. It became holy ground because God's holy presence was there. Take your sandals off your feet because where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, now why would he have him take his sandals off? Because Moses' feet were probably dirty anyway. It had nothing to do with whether they were clean or dirty. The sandals that Moses wore were made by a man, whether it was Moses or his wife or somebody. Moses' feet were made by God. There's a place in Exodus where God gives the, the principle of the altar. And he says this, when you make an altar, here's your restrictions. You can make your altar of dirt, you can pile dirt up and, and have your altar on it. Or you can make your altar out of stone, but you can't cut the stone in any way. Because the moment you cut that stone, you profane it. The word profane means you take out of the holy realm and you bring down to the common realm. And the reason God did that is because stones were made by God. The earth is made by God. And because God made it, it can be used for holy purposes. But the moment man adds his ability, the moment man adds his effort to that, he now profanes it and it's no longer holy. And boy, well, I can just thought of a whole series to preach on that. But we're not going to do that this morning. So this is why he tells him to take his sandals off. And he says, Moreover, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And now, look at Moses. He's not casual. He's not curious anymore. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid 
to look upon God. When he had a revelation of the holiness of God, it moved him. God told him to take his sandals off, but God didn't tell him to get on his face. If Jesus physically appeared in here right now, none of us would seat, be seated. None of us would need to fo- be told it's time to get on your knees. We'd all fall on our face because of the power and the transcendence of His holiness. Moses realized that he was face to face with the God who made him. Now let's go over to Exodus 33. Here's another encounter that Moses has with God. Verse 13. Now Moses is on the mountain. He's going down the mountain because the people sinned and now he's back up on the mountain. And, and, and he's been talking with God for a while and he's, he's, getting, he's being drawn to God. He says, verse 13, Now, therefore, I pray that if I found favor in your sight, please show me your way, or show me your ways. I want to know more about you. I want to know your ways. That I may know you, and that I might find grace or favor in your sight. For consider this nation as your people. And he said, God said back to him, My presence will go with you. That's pretty good. My presence, my tangible presence will go with you. That was his, the pillar of fire in the day and the cloud of fire of fire at night and the cloud of fire by day in the tabernacle, coming out of the tabernacle. My presence will go with you uh, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up for here. That's another message. For how then will it be known to your people that I've not, that I've found grace or favor in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate. There are too many churches today, there are too many people today that are trying to do a work for God without His presence going with Him. And this teaches us that it is His presence that makes us different from the world. Otherwise, we're just a social club. So shall, Look at this. I have found favor in your sight. Except you go with us, so shall we be separate, that means holy, your people and I from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace or favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And now Moses said, okay, you're showing me your grace, you're showing me, you're going to give me your presence, I'm going to go go for the jackpot. And he said, please show me your glory. I've got to take a moment to explain. The word glory there means his weightiness. That means show me the very essence of who you are, the very core of your being. Show me that. I want to see that. And then God said to him in verse 19, what I'll do is I'll make my goodness pass before you. That literally means his hindsight, hind parts, his back. I'll make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll compassion with my compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see my face and live. Why? Because the, the, the essence of our personality, the essence of, comes out of our face, our facial expressions. And the essence of God is coming out of His face. In the end of the book of the, end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down and the new city is, is described, it says there's no lights in there. 
There's no candles. There's no, there's no flames. There's no light bulbs. The entire city is lit by the glory that's coming from the face of God. So God's saying, no man can look at my face and live. And the Lord says, but here, I found a place for you. This is verse 21. I find a place for you. You can stand on the rock. And he said to me, and it shall be that while my glory passes, that I will put you in the, whole, the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take my hand away. And boop, you can see the back of me. I'll just go by, and I'm covering you, and boop, you can take a peek, and then come back. Now, what's that? The rock was protecting Moses from the power of, of God's glory and the rock is a symbol of Christ because we've been placed in Christ and in Him we can come into God's presence. In Him we are protected from His, His essence. Okay. Destroying us. Okay. We've got to move on. Wow. Quickly. Let's look at some people that encountered this transcendence Oh, I'm going to have time to go there. In Exodus 34, and then Hebrews talks about this. When Moses comes down off the mountain, there's a problem. Because Moses' face is shining. The glory of God, just from his backside, is so strong that, there's a, that it is embedded in his face. And it, it's radiating out from his face. So that people can't stand in Moses' presence now. So that it tells us in Hebrews that Moses, and later on in, in, in Exodus, Moses has to put a veil over his face so that he can go home to his wife. Because that glory is so powerful, it got embedded in his skin, but, it did this, but the glory wasn't coming out of Moses. So in time, away from the presence of God, it began to fade. The other thing about this transcendent glory of God is that in the 40 days and nights that Moses was in God's presence, twice he neither ate food nor drank water. He wasn't on a fast. He was in the presence of absolute life. And in that presence, he couldn't die. He didn't need food. He didn't need water. He didn't need anything to sustain his life because of the presence of God, the absolute presence of God. So, we're going to go over, I'm going to have to describe to you these situations. The first one, this is, we're going to look at people's reaction to the same transcendence in Christ. In Mark chapter 4, there's a story of Jesus saying, we're going to go to the other side. They get in a boat, they get out on the, out on the water, this storm whips up. These are, again, at least four of them are professional fishermen. This may be one of their boats. They're used to being out on this water and they're panicked and he's asleep in the back of the boat. And they wake him up and say, don't you care about us? And Jesus goes to the bow of the boat and just says, peace, be still. And they look to him and they wonder. It says in the, new, in, the, in the original King James, what manner of man is this? And they're afraid of him. Now, the first thing about Jesus is the storm didn't, nothing unsettled Jesus. The storm didn't unsettle him. The lack of, of food to feed a multitude didn't unsettle him that not having money to pay the, the, the temple tax didn't phase him. Even when they beat him, it didn't phase him. Nothing phased Jesus. He was transcendent over everything. And when they came in contact with a man who not only wasn't moved by what scared them, but had authority over the storm, they fell down and they were in awe of him. The other story we're going to look at is where 
Peter just let Jesus use his boat to preach from. And then Jesus, to reward him, I guess, said, well, launch out in the deep and cast down your nets for, for a, a catch of fish. And Peter says, well, Master, I appreciate that. You're, you're a carpenter. We're fishermen. And we've just come back. We fished all night. There are no fish there. Trust me. Believe me. But then he says the key words. Nevertheless, at your word. And, and I don't believe Peter had a lot of confidence anything was going to happen because in, in, the, in the literal Greek... He took one net. Jesus said, take your nets out there. And Peter took one net. The other evidence of that is when his net was filled, he had to get his, his, his partners to come in and help him catch the fish. So they're out there. I think he's just going through the motion, throw out the net. And the next thing you know, they've got more fish than they've ever seen in their life coming in and their boat's about to sink. And, and Peter knows that only a little while before, there were no fish there. Peter knows that in the natural, fish don't just show up like that. Not at that time of day. But now because this man said those words, they're teeming with fish. Peter gets back in the boat and goes back to Jesus and looks at him and falls on his face before him and says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Why? Jesus had flesh and blood. Jesus had eyes and He had hair that they could touch. But there was something about Him. The God part of Him was transcendent. It was above what man could normally do. It was above it. So what is this? What is this transcendence about God? The transcendence about God is when we, people come into the presence or are confronted with who this God is, they immediately become aware that they are just a creation and that He's a creator. What makes Him transcendent and in addition to all the other qualities He have is He is the self-existent one. He is the creator of all things. And everything that comes into His presence whether they're angels or saints or sinners, everything that comes into His presence is a creation coming face to face with its Creator. And the world today does not recognize that God is its Creator. The church, by and large, does not recognize that God is is this, oh, we know it up here, but we don't live our life as if the God we're praying to, the God we're worshiping, is our creator and we owe our very existence to Him. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 explains that God's ultimate judgment on the world will because they didn't recognize the creator and they worshiped the creation and not the creator. Humanism, which is what's rampant in the world today, is the worshiping of mankind as if we, are, we have the creative power to make ourselves, to reform ourselves, and to change this world. Man cannot solve the problems that are out in this world today because the very heart of those problems is the, is the f- sinful heart, the selfish heart, the proud and arrogant heart of man that stands up for itself and demands its rights. And we may have rights. I'm not denying that. I'm talking about the church right now. It's the loss of the sense of this holiness that's led us to where the church is today. This is where the world is and much of the church is now. This is why we're man-centered 
and not God-centered. We're out there looking for wisdom. We're out there looking for knowledge. The politicians are trying to solve all these things. The church conferences are trying to solve all of these things. And the Bible has a very simple answer. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord, the holy reverence for who He is. And the word Lord there is Yahweh, the self-existent one. The fear or the reverence for the holy God is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Without that understanding of who God is and the experience of His holiness, we do not have a hope of having a wisdom and an understanding that will change this world, change the church, and change our lives. So the question is, how do we get it? What do we do? Revelation chapter 3 is, a, is a, Revelation chapter three, 2 and 3 is Jesus, um, is Jesus writing a letter to the church to different churches seven different churches giving, um, giving them basically a report card on how well they did and where they are what they need to change except one church hadn't done anything wrong the church we're going to look at quickly is the church of Laodicea because that speaks, I think, very much of where the church generally is today. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, I write these things, the Amen. This is Jesus speaking to this church, that church. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. And I wish you were cold or hot, so then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit vomit or spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, become wealthy, and need of nothing, because you say that, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, where this church thought they were was very different than where Jesus saw they were. And naked. I counsel you, and this is what he told them to do. Number one, buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be truly rich. White garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed, and that the eyes of your... and, and that you anoint, anoint your eyes with eyes have that you may see. So what is this gold refined by fire? I believe it is trading in the things that we've invested our life in in this world that are only temporary and, and making the priorities of our life the things that are eternal. The value of our life being the things that are eternal. And the, he tells us to become zealous. He says, he says um, um, therefore... Therefore, those that I love, I rebuke and I chasten. So he loves us. He's not telling us these things because he's angry at us. He's telling us these things because he's love us. But we have to listen and we have to change. Therefore, two things. Be zealous. Be passionate about it. You know how you develop a passion? You start praying for something. I've found my whole attitude towards our political leaders has changed as I've started bearing down praying for them. I have a very different view of them because I'm praying for them, not criticizing them. And then repent. What does the word repent mean? It means to change your mind, not just have a different opinion, but to change your commitment and to change your mind. Recognize where we are and realize we have got to change. We can't do it ourselves, but we have to ask for that change by repenting and facing where we are. And I believe that if our heart... Oh, he goes on to say, if, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, that's their heart, I will come in and dine with him 
and He with me. That means He will come in. If we'll just face where we are, be willing to be honest of where we are, we're not reverencing His name. We're not, we're not regarding His name. Here's the test. I read it from R.C. Paul. If His holy, if we really see His holiness, it will impact every area of our life, not just our church life, not just our prayer life. It will, it will affect us at, at work. It will affect us in our opinions. It will affect us in the things we post on social media because we, are, we belong to and are children of a holy God, which is why He says that we are to be holy along with Him. So what do we do? If we just open the door of our heart and repent, He'll come in and bring those changes into our life. I want to close by reading the next chapter because it is a vision into the throne room of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open into heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance an emerald. Remember, this is a man trying to describe things he could see with human words, things he saw that were beyond human words to describe. Around the throne were 24 elders. And on the throne I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. It's the, it's the radiant glory of God just shooting out of His presence. Thunders and voices and the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature that was flying like an eagle. And the four living creatures each had six wings with full, and were full of eyes around them and within. And they don't rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their thrones before the, thr- before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Listen to this. For You created all things. And by your will, they will exist and were created. One translation says, And for your pleasure, they were created. How does this apply to us? I'll, I'm going to close with a story I heard John Bevere tell. It really dramatizes this. He was speaking at a, at a, at a convention uh, I think it was in South America. I think it may have been Brazil. And he was one of a number of speakers. And, and so they, they had a limousine that would come and pick him up at his hotel and bring him over when the meeting began. And he was sitting on the stage where the other speakers were sitting. And a man had gotten up, I've forgotten who it was, and he'd just, he'd just given his, his message. And, and John looked out and noticed that while the message was being given, people were, were getting up out of their seats and they were going out and they were, they were going to the concession stands and they were getting their hot dog and their Coke, 
and they were coming back and they were just sitting there eating their hot dog and coke while God was speaking them through one of his messengers. And it grieved John. And he didn't know what to do. So when it was, they finished and there was an applause and John comes up there and people are coming in and out and drinking their Coke and eating their hot dog, kind of like they would at a concert or at a football game or a baseball game. And John's looking, listening, what do I do? And the Lord says, don't do anything, just stand there and wait for them to notice you're not saying anything. So he did that, he just stood there. And it took quite a while. It's very uncomfortable to do that. And gradually, people dawns on them, we're, we're not hearing anything. And so when he had a sense that everybody was finally looking at him, he began to talk about the holiness of God and the irreverence for God. And he began to teach on the holiness of God. And about the time he was finished, this was a, a, in, in, in third world countries often where, where, there's, where there's such heat and there's not air conditioning, that, what, that, that it was an open stadium with a roof on it, but it was open. So air could come in and out. And all of a sudden near the end, they began to hear a roar as if, an, as if a jet plane was taking off or landing right next door. And it was like a wind was rushing through it. And it was a holy presence fell over the place and people fell on their face and began to worship God. What a, same, same people, same facility, same meeting. The difference was their reverence for God. When the meeting was over, he was in the limousine going back to the hotel and one of the people in the limousine was in the, from the sound booth and they got talking about what happened and about this noise and he said did it sound like it was coming from the outside he said the interesting thing is I'm, I'm, at, the, I'm at, the, at, the, at the board when that noise came through the noise meter never moved it was not a physical sound wave hitting their ears it was a spiritual sound that was hitting their spirits and it moved them same people same room, same meeting, dramatically different results. And the only difference was in the first part. They were casual about this God. In the second part, they recognized who this God is that they had come to worship. We're living in an age of grace, and that's wonderful. We need to know that we can come into the presence of God at any time, day or night, and we can be real and open. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 that we can come boldly to a throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need. The word boldly means you can just pour your guts out to God. You can just pour your heart out to Him. You don't have to worry about whether you say the right thing, stand or kneel. It's not that kind of thing. But in the process of it, we can lose the sense of who this God is. And He can become our best buddy, our best friend forever. And He is, wants to be a friend. He wants to be close to you. But we can't ever forget He's a holy God. Because if we do, what we start doing is bringing God down to our level. And God wants to bring us up to his level. He ends that by saying, Be ye holy as I am holy. When we bring God down to our level, we make an idol out of the image we have of him. 
when we let him reveal himself to us, he brings us up to our level and he turns us into the image of Christ. I believe this is the end of this series of of who God is. But I encourage you to go back over it. The notes are online. You can download the notes. You can pull it up on YouTube. You can, all kinds of ways, podcast it. To meditate on who this God is. Remember, when God appeared to Israel, when God appeared to people He called, He always started out by revealing who He is first. Because as Sproul said, how you see this God and how you respond to Him will affect every area of your life. Before we close, I want to speak directly to those of you that are not in this room, that may be watching. And you may have been raised in church the way I was, and you believe in God. Most people believe in God. You may even been raised as I was to believe that Jesus Christ is His Son, and that believe that He died to pay for the sins of the world. I was raised to believe that. But then we go off and we have our own belief system about what it means to go to heaven. Well, I believe this and I believe that. It's interesting in a family reunions and in parties when you can allowed to go to them again, how people have their own view of what, what it means to get into heaven. And years ago it dawned on me, and maybe it was my background as a lawyer, my view, well, let me put it this way. When I argued a case in front of a judge and I prepared my case, I didn't have the right to go before the judge and say, Your Honor, my client's a really nice guy. If you really got to know him, you would like him. And if you really like him, you would find for him. And these are all the good things that he's done. Oh, yeah, he's messed up a little bit. But, you know, even though he's here for some trouble, but he's, he's basically a good person. And you know me. You know, I come here every week and you've gotten to know me and, and you know I'm, a, I'm an honest, pretty honest lawyer and that's wonderful to have an honest lawyer. And, and, and you know, and so I, I, really, I really think for those reasons you ought to find for my client. I'd be thrown out of the courtroom. Because that judge can't make his decision based on what I think is right. He can only make his decision based on what the law says is right. And I've had judges essentially tell me I wanted to decide the other way. That's what I wanted to do, but I'm constrained by what the law says. I said all of that to tell you this. You and I, our opinions of what it takes to go to heaven mean nothing. Because my opinion before God doesn't count, and your opinion before God doesn't count. We jokingly make these jokes about, well, St. Peter's at the gate, and this is what he's going to say when you get there. That's a wonderful, funny jokes. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's one doorway into heaven. And at that door is not St. Peter. At that door is Jesus Christ Himself. And the reason He is the only entrance into heaven is because what keeps people out of heaven is our sin. It's not just lying, cheating, stealing, lustful thoughts. It's this dishonoring of God we talked about today. It's not reverencing this God for who He is and living my whole life recognizing He's my creator and He's my source. 
And God's standard is if we're going to get into heaven, we have to be as holy as He is. I remember one day having raised up, learning that, you know, all my life in church, knowing Jesus was the Son of God, He died for the sins of the world. I remember believing all my life there was a God. I was a deacon in my church. And one night I'm reading my Bible and I read that one verse in, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus quotes this and says, Be ye holy as my Father's holy. And literally the words out of my mouth, I can't do that. I need somebody to save me. And the moment I heard those words, I knew why Jesus came for me. And I saw that night what I'm telling you tonight, today is that you can believe all that you want and it's not enough. You must ask that same Jesus to come into your life and receive Him as the one that paid for your sins as I had to do that night. And then you must take your, Lord, your life and put it in His hands to be Lord. If you've never done that, I want to help you do that this morning by leading you in a very simple prayer. All you've got to do is repeat this with me and mean it as best you can. That's all you've got to do. So just repeat this with me and then I want to give you a little bit of instructions. Say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You know everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I ever thought. For whatever did not please you, I ask you to forgive me. I repent. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me clean in your sight. Jesus, I call upon you to come into my life as my Savior. And I put my life as it is right now into your hands to be Lord. Fill me with your Spirit that I may live long for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've done that today for the first time, there's two things you need to do. You need to let somebody know you've done that. And, and one way to do that, the best way you can do that, aside from telling somebody you're with now, is call our office tomorrow. 508-336-4110. Someone will answer the phone and we have some material we want to send out to you to give you a better understanding of the decision that you've made today. They'd be happy to pray with you. 508-336-4110. Or you can go online to a website we have called Catch the Truth, all one word, dot com. There's information there of how we can get the materials into your hand. The second decision you need to make is be back here next week. You can either register or go online and come on and join us because we'll be live streaming next week also. And that way you can begin to grow in what God's brought you into today. Well, right now we're going to close with a worship song. So those of you here, you can stand. Thank you so much.